If you will, go ahead and turn to Acts 19. Acts 19, we're going to be in, picking up in verse 10 and finishing out the chapter. We're going to go ahead and start in verse 10. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to kind of unpack a few of the verses at the beginning. Then we're going to, we're going to read a big section of it at the end. And then we're going to come back and camp out kind of one little uh, section of this text. Because obviously it's all important. But there's one little section I want to highlight, and really is kind of the theme for everything I'm going to be talking about this morning. So let's go ahead and do that, and then um, we'll trust that God's going to work and use this message to, to touch our hearts and work in our lives, right? Verse 10, this is where John left off last week. They continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now, you look at the book of Ephesians, that was written while Paul was in jail. So when he's writing back to the Ephesians, this is what he's writing about, the, this idea of he's kind of, he's adding on to or, or giving them more detail now that those two years that he spent with them really building up um, the work of the ministry in the church for these two years. And he says this, and God was doing extraordinary miracles. Will you underline that or circle that? Extraordinary miracles. It says this, by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their disease left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Now, you know, it would be really easy just to skip over that verse, all right? But I, I will just tell you, there's, there are texts in Scripture that make me feel really uncomfortable, and this is one of them, okay? Um, I will say this, there are, there's a school of thought in, in theology that is this idea of um, a sensationalist, but basically it's sen sensationist, okay, that basically what, what's happened is that during the times of the apostles, the original disciples, that there was a season where God did these extraordinary things, if you will, the sign gifts, and during that time, and then when they died off, they died off, right, so like healings. Okay, casting out demons, those type of things. Well, that's one view. And then the other view, the other extreme view typically people take is that, uh, well, behind every door is a demon, and we all focus on speaking in tongues, and we, we, these miraculous things, and obviously we sell televangelists sell their handkerchiefs and, and stuff like that. We're in neither one of those camps, okay? We're in the middle. This is what we say. We believe that God can do whatever he wants when he wants it, Okay. And he can do extraordinary things. But our focus is the gospel, right? Because I tell all my Pentecostal friends is this. There's no greater miracle than when God takes a heart of stone and turns it to a heart of flesh. And there's no greater miracle than when somebody was dead and now they're alive. They were blind and now they can see. In other words, the gospel is the greatest miracle. That's why Jesus came, okay? Some of this other stuff is, is things that God does and he does it when he does, when he does it and how he does it, right? We, we don't have control of that, okay? But it, it, is, it is important to you to understand that Luke is a doctor. He's a medical doctor. He's writing this. And so he, he emphasizes, some of you guys in your translation may say unusual, okay? Uh, miracles, but it's this idea that God did something really extraordinary, unusual, that doesn't normally happen, um, and so I want you to know that, and this is, this is what took place during this time. Well, now, what's interesting is you have a group of Jewish um, people or leaders that kind of try to jump on the wagon, so to speak, so let's, let's finish. It says this, then some of the inerrant 
Jewish exorcist undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Now, isn't it interesting, that phrase, not by Jesus' name that I proclaim, but by Paul proclaims. I think Ken, if you were here a couple weeks ago, he hit on this in his sermon. Many people know about God, but they don't know God. They know about Jesus, but they don't know Jesus. There's a difference. There's a difference about knowing about something and knowing, right? So this idea of before I was married, I knew about my wife. Now I know my wife, right? After 20-some years. So it's this idea of knowing about versus knowing. And so understanding there's a difference. So we'll, we're going to see this difference in just a moment. So it says this, the seven sons of the Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this, but the evil spirit answered them and said this, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? That's bad news. Let me just tell you right now, that is bad news. If you face a demon, and this is the word you hear, I think you should just go ahead and run, because this is what's going to happen. It says here, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them. Think about that. Seven to one. Seven to one. I don't think these guys were all pencil neck guys, okay? I think they were probably men who probably could handle themselves. Seven to one. And it says this. And all of them overpowered them so that they fled out of the house. Now, I know it says naked, but I say naked, okay? Because that's when you have nothing on, all right? So this is what happened. They were naked, all right? And they, and they were wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, I want you to imagine if seven pastors or seven elders or seven leaders decided to go to someone's house, and cast out a demon, and they left running out of that house, bloody and naked. What, do you think it would make the news? It probably would, right? Seven Baptist ministers go to house running out naked and bloody. I would not want to be a part of that group, all right? That would be a shameful thing. Uh, but this is, this is the reality. Now, th what's interesting is this, the next line in this, because I think this is really important. This is one of the things I want to highlight. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Listen to this. And fear fell upon them all, and that the name of Jesus was extolled. Now, this is what I believe. If you're keeping notes today, I want you to write this down. I think there are times where God allows things to happen in our lives to put the fear of God in us. It could be a phone call from a doctor. It could be an accident of a family member or a friend. It could be an illness. It could be a close call. But he allows, it could even be the death of someone that's close to you. 
But I believe God allows, or God ordains in sovereign plan, He orchestrates, orchestrates things in our lives to get our attention, if you will, to spiritually throw cold water in our face, to get us to understand that we need to fear Him. In fact, if you look at it, uh, it really resonates a little, a little bit with this text, it, um, Ecclesiologies talks about all these things in life are vanity. The only thing that matters to man is to, listen, to fear God and to follow his commandments. So he's going to allow things in our lives to get our attention. It says this, And the name of the Lord, or, Lord was extolled or proclaimed or announced or preached, right? Proclaimed. He was lifted up. The name of Jesus was lifted up. And also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. Here's our big idea today. Write this down, if you will. When Jesus takes his true position as king and savior in our lives, idols are identified and slaughtered. I use that word on purpose, okay? You could say burned, when we see a picture of that today, but destroyed which will change the cultural norms of our society. In other words, when we change, when our actions change, when our lives change, it affects what we normally do on a regular basis, both in our lives and the lives of the people around us. We're going to see this portrayed today. I mean, we're seeing radical changes. In fact, when you look at some of the great awakenings of God, including the book of Acts, what you see is when people's lives are changed by the power of the Holy Spirit, they affect their culture, and not only that, the whole culture changes. If you study some of the great awakenings in Scripture, you see where there were red light districts in cities and areas, okay? And the whole, within months, the whole area is shut down. It's out of business because no more, no more people aren't picking up prostitutes anymore, right? They're not doing drugs anymore, they're not living out in adulterous affairs because God is working in their lives and change them and change the culture around them. And this is what we're going to see an example of this morning. You know, the reality is we as humans are made to worship. Okay? Humans are made to worship. If not the true living God, then it will be an idol. Okay? If not the one true living God, it's going to be an idol. Well, I want to I continue. I'm going to read through the rest of the, the chapter, and then we're going to come back and pick up on this section right here that I'm reading. But I want us to get the full picture of what's going on. It says this, And a number of those who had practiced arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, what I did was I did a little math to figure this out, and they, they, when you read the commentaries, it, it, it has this idea that silver equaled so many, a, a day of work, right? So I took the average of what this area makes, and I divided that up by 365, and then I multiplied that by 50,000, so you get this number of over $11 million. Now, you think about that. They just burnt... $11 million. That's a lot of money. But you know what? 
what they realize is this. They would rather burn it than allow that to have eternal effects in the lives of other people and cause them to drift away from God and be pulled away from the gospel. And it says this, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Now after these events, Paul resolved in his spirit to pass through Macedonia, Archaea, and go to Jerusalem after saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and uh, Aretas, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little, I love how the scriptures talk about it, no little, no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named uh, Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see here that not only in Ephesus, but in, most, in almost all of Asia, this Paul persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may uh, come into dis, dis, disrepute, but also that the temple of the great Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even dispose from her magnificence. She, uh, she whom all of Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged and crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging them Gaius and um, Aristarchus and uh, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. And when Paul wished to go in, uh, in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the um, Asia, Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent him and, and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cry out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know they had come, why they had come together. And some of the crowd prompt Alexander, uh, who the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of uh, Ephesus, I'm sorry, of the Ephesians, is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Now, I want you to think about that. There's a lot of people that worship a lot of things. How much faith does it take to worship a stone? Right? I think it takes a little bit more faith sometimes when we see in our world what they worship versus the one true living God. It takes a little bit more faith, I think, to believe sometimes and things our world promotes. Seeing that then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither um, sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open, and theirs are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further... It shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we, uh, 
For we really are in danger of being charged with writing today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when they heard these things, he dismissed the assembly. Imagine this. I mean, this, when, when the scriptures talk about the church turning the world upside down, this is the kind of things that took place, right? Where is, where is God working in these days like this? I believe he's still at work. I think what it, what it comes down to is us surrendering our lives to him and becoming so completely dependent upon him and being vocal about the, the gospel and wanting to share. I believe God wants to do these things today. Not bring upheaval, but he wants to bring about salvation. He wants to bring people into the kingdom of God. And we're here to advance that kingdom. If you will, we're, we're part of the church. We are the church. And so we are t- have a mandate to continue sharing this gospel. You know, this idea of worship continues because we are all made to worship. There's a book that Mark Driscoll wrote. It's called Doctrine. And he says this, Worship is not merely an aspect of our being, but the essence of our being as God's image bearers. Understanding this, because we're made to worship, even people that don't recognize Jesus, they're made to worship. So guess what? They're going to put something in that spot. And we see here today, when those things are disrupted, what happens? Riots take place. Why? Because their God has somehow let them down, right? I think about that the story of Elijah, when he's about to call down fire for heaven, and he gives all these false prophets of Baal, and they, they start calling and chanting, and they start cutting themselves, they do everything, but their God does not show up, right? And Elijah just says a simple prayer, and fire comes down from heaven, and light consumes everything on the altar. And I think about this picture when Paul is proclaiming the good news, and these people are upset because Their dead God cannot do anything about the gospel, cannot change it, cannot push it back. See, as a result, all our life are ceaseless worship. Practically, this means that while worship does include corporate church meetings, singing songs like we did this morning, literary forms, but it's not limited by these things. In in other words, it's not defined solely as these things or expressions only in these things. Rather, we we are continually giving ourselves, listen to this, we never stop worshiping. Do you know that? We're worshiping all day. We're just worshiping something. In other words, we're always giving ourselves to something, pouring ourselves out for a person, a cause, an experience, an achievement, or a status. We're constantly worshiped throughout our day. Whatever we give our attention and time and energy and resources, our thoughts, everything to. There's a great book called The Counterfeit God. Uh, Tim Keller says this, our fondest daydreams reveal our hidden idols. You know, we, it's easy for us to look at this text and think, who in the world would worship a rock? Who in the world would make little silver images and put them in their house and worship them? But listen, if we step back for a moment and we look at our own lives, we would say, who in the world will really worship some of the things we worship? We, we know in the scan, uh, scheme of eternity, we're here but for a vapor. Listen, if you live 70, 80, if you're fortunate to live 90 or 100, 
That is a blip on a radar screen. A blimp. I mean, think about this. Think about the millions and billions and trillions of people that have passed away on this earth that you had never known. They may have been significant in their season, their time. But guess what? They're gone. And they're either in heaven or hell. And they're just here for a moment. See, what is our life, guys? This is Ecclesiastes. Our life is to be given back to our creator, our designer, the one who made the heavens and the earth. He wants a relationship with us. This is what we see. In fact, Tim continues to say in this book, he says, the, the true God of our heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. Wow. That hit me right in the teeth. When I have nothing else to think about, where does my mind go? What does it go to? Well, those are the idols that are in my life that we need to slaughter, we need to crush. Talk about that in just a minute. What do you enjoy daydreaming about? What occupies your mind when there's nothing else to think about? Do you develop potential scenarios about career advancement or material goods or dream home? Or is your relationship with a particular person? You know, one or two daydreams, there's really no indication of an idol. I'm asking rather, what is your habitual thoughts that bring you joy and comfort and the privacy of your heart? What are those things that are idols in your life? See, idols are false gods, but that does not mean they're powerless. They have power in our life. See, whatever you, shapes our values will have an impact on how we live, our choices, our relationships, our priorities. And that, in turn, will impact those around us, for good or for bad. In other words, the images in your mind are the motivation behind your behavior. As a man thinketh, so is he. So those things that come in our mind, those things that we fantasize about, when nothing else, okay, those things that dominate us, they become idols in our life. Just as idols may be necessarily, a, they may not necessarily be a bad thing, they may actually be a good thing. We were talking about this with our Men of Valor night the other night. We talked about good things versus God things. But when those good things turn into ultimate things, so the desires that they generate become paralyzing and overwhelming. In other words, idols generate false beliefs. In other words, if I cannot achieve X, then my life won't be valid. It won't be worth living. Or if I lose at this or, or fail at this, then I can no longer be happy or I can no longer be forgiven. These beliefs manifest and they become these ordinary disappointments and these fail failures become life-shattering experiences because we have wrong beliefs in our mind. They become idols. And by the way, if you know this about your heart and my heart, but the human heart is an idol factory. It's constantly setting up idols all the time. I can tell you on a daily, weekly basis, have to crucify those things, have to slaughter them, because they are constantly creeping up, sprouting up. They want to take over. And I will tell you, primarily, there's three areas that I see in Scripture that main areas of idolatry, this idea of pagan, secular, and religious. 
Pagan idolatry is really characterized by practices that are explicitly spiritual in nature. But they do not involve the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In other words, they're man-made. They may be named a, or an unnamed God. There may be a spirit, if you will, or Mother Nature, or higher being. And that may require meditation or some type of pagan practices. May include things like Hinduism or Buddhism or some type of nature-driven spirituality. We see this all in the New Age concepts. Could even involve a Ouija board or crystal balls or tarot cards or even rely on the stars, if you will, for your future. Can I tell you something? Wow, we're going to worship the stars when we can worship the creator of the stars, right? But listen, we can't understand that it's just those things. It's more things. This idea of secular idolatry is, is practiced by even those who don't consider themselves religious in any way. In most common form of idolatry in our Western modern world are things like this, sex, money, power, physical appearance, family, Romance, fame, leisure, celebrities, success, food, comfort, image, and even pleasure. These are the things that drive us. People who are not even religious give themselves over these things. They give themselves in such a way, as they give themselves over, they become slaves to these things. They dominate their lives, and they mirror really religious devotion. It works something like this. Let me give you an example because I, I work with students for such a long time and I see this in relationships many times. It works out something like this. Someone who has a false idea of what heaven is and what hell is and it turns those false gods and they turn to those false gods for deliverance. Let me give you an example. Say a teenage girl, her worst nightmare is this imaginable thought uh, that she's not the object of a young man's affection. So for her, that's hell. On the flip side, the best thing she can imagine for is for that young man to give her total enthrallment, right? Total attention. Idolize her. And this seems to almost be like heaven for her. Therefore, in order for her to get out of her functional hell into her functional heaven, she needs to, a God, if you will, to save her. A young man would be her prince. Though almost no teenage girl would say her boyfriend is her God, she, they often act like it. He or she's first thought in the morning and last thought before they go to bed is that person. He is the one who is trusted to take away her loneliness and bring meaning to her daily life. He is the source of her happiness, her self-worth, and she is willing to do anything to please him and stay on his good side. In other words, the boyfriend becomes her God. She is practicing idolatry. Now, this can happen with anyone. It can happen for a guy. It can happen for a young lady. It can happen for, guess what? It can happen for a career. It can happen for a home. We can even make our kids our idols. So this can be the thing that trips us all up. And I can tell you this, everyone in North America struggles with secular idols. There's not a doubt that all of us struggle in many ways. We all have hearts that turn away from God and turn to other things to solve our problems and meet our needs that only God can really do. 
In other words, think about this. Every time you're disappointed in someone or something, what you're really saying is, I'm disappointed in him or her or the situation. Only that could, real disappointment could be filled by God, but we're trying to trust someone or something to fill that void every time we're disappointed. See, secular uh, ideologies all around us, they're woven into our national discourse. We even see this, and we do this even in our political realm. We labor ourselves, and, and when we label ourselves, we fall into this ism, whatever it may be. We, we, we follow that instead of following the gospel. Instead of making Jesus our identity, we make that stuff our identity. i got news for me and for you. The answer for our world is the gospel. It's Jesus Christ. It's not a political party. It's not a political gender. Not that we shouldn't be involved in all of that. We should, okay? As we're talking about today, we affect our culture. We should be infused in that. But understand that Jesus is the answer. The gospel is the answer. And then this last area is this idea of religious idolatry. Speaking to the choir here. If you're here this morning, you, you come for a worship experience, you come to hear the gospel, you come to hear the teaching to build community. But listen, just as we're here today, religious idolatry seems like worship on the outside, but it's not the real thing at all. Churches are full of religious idolatry because we're, we're people who many times go through the motions of religious activities or practices, but we're not engaging God with our heart. Jesus faced these people, Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, you serve God with your lips, but your hearts are far from. How many times I've been guilty of worshiping God with my lips and not giving him my heart. Imagine a person who goes to church faithfully every week. They sing the songs. They listen to politely to the sermon. They put their money in the offering plate. They, they for, perform various rituals. And these even taking communion or getting baptized. But these individuals are doing all of this for religious activity because it's expected of them. Somehow they want to be good in God's eyes. They want to earn his grace. But in fact, they're committing idolatry. The false God is a religious practices themselves, not what the religious practice points to. See, Jesus regularly, regularly butted heads with the Pharisees and Sadducees because this is what they were doing. They were trusting for their performance, not in God. They were trusting in their activity, not in the saving grace and mercy of Christ. See, listen, guys. If you're here this morning and you've trusted in anything other than the finished work of Jesus Christ, then you're trusting in something that's not real. Our sal salvation is based on grace by faith. It is not of ourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not about performing. In fact, there's a great text that Paul wrote about in the book of Romans. He says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable God, which is your spiritual worship. In other words, he's saying, just, just as we read Tim Keller talked about, is that all our life is this of a worship. And Mark Driscoll, we talked about our lives are worship. We're made to worship. So we're motivated not by somehow earning 
are right from God. But listen, we're motivated by the mercies of God. In other words, it is something we give back because of our response of his great mercies. We've been adopted into the family of God. And so therefore, we, we give back in our lives and out of our relationship, right? Not out of just paying back or somehow earning, but this idea of a relationship with him. In fact, we see this um, in Ephesians, we're saved by grace through faith. This is not of ourselves. People don't read this, but it's verse 10. It says this, for we are work, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, God created us to be fully alive in him. And we're given his Holy Spirit. Now we have the power, the authority to overcome death, sin, and the grave and to live a life. That he's called us to live. But again, it's, it's in response to his love. It's not to earn his love. It's not to earn his grace. This is what I know about idols. Idols always overpromise and underdeliver. That's what I know about idols. I can tell you personally, anytime I've allow myself to fall into idolatry and put my hope, my happiness, my peace in something other than the one true living God I've always experienced and hurt and destruction around me. Idols will always overpromise and underdeliver. There's only one that we can count on See, guys, I, I, we talked about this a little bit last week. I talked about with this with someone uh, right after our baptism orientation last week. And so we, we got to understand that there is this thing called justification. In other words, when we're saved, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not of ourselves. And the Bible says um, get, he gives us his spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. He's anointed us. He's put a seal of ownership on us. So we have the seal of the king through his spirit. And so nothing can break that. And we're, we're made right for God by the blood of Christ. In other words, that is a done deal. When Jesus says finished, it's finished, right? But there's this practical thing called sanctification that we live out daily. And it's saying that we have to, we have to crucify ourselves. In fact, um, Galatians 2.20 says this. I have been crucified in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life I now live, I live, by, uh, I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved, him, loved me and gave himself for me. Listen, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, if I somehow could earn it, this is what Paul's saying, if I could clean myself up, then Christ died for nothing because I could earn it. I could, I could somehow achieve it, but that can only be achieved through the finished work of Jesus. But the reality is, just as we see this, we see these, these um, new believers, what do they do? When they, were, when they see it and the fear of God comes upon them, and they've, they've been justified before God by faith, but what happens is it's working out of sanctification. So what do we see when the fear of the Lord fell upon them. It says that Jesus was exculled. In other words, the gospel was lifted up. Jesus was lifted up. But it also says this. Now, those 
who were now believers, these are brand new converts, what happened? They confessed their sin, they divulged their sin and their practices. So this is what happened. They had already repented, but there was more stuff, more layers that was in there that God wanted to get out. In other words, when the Israelites were delivered from Egypt, they were the sin, the bondage of sin, if you will, was broken, right? The, the bondage of slavery was broken. But what happened? We saw in, in, in the desert that Egypt was still in them. And so what happened? God had to work out their salvation. He had to work through them to get the Egypt out of them. And this is what we see in our lives through the, these young believers is we see that God's got to get the junk that's in our lives that we've let habits come in. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't supernaturally deliver many of us in circumstances. But also, there's a painful thing called sanctification, as we read in Galatians, that there is a crucifying. And by the way, crucifixion is bloody and messy and complicated, right? So God is working this thing out. And I want to encourage you, as we, Jono talked about last week, as the ladies talked about on their on their uh, conference on the Saturday before, as we talked about in the Men of Valor Sunday night, that you need to find a group of believers. It starts in community group. And that you need to do life. And as, as you grow in your relationship, there's more people that you need to become more intimate. Because when it says divulge, literally that means to open up in a group. And that's really, I, I see that as accountability. In other words, you become accountable on how you're living your life with other people. And that takes time. Why? Because it involves trust and vulnerability. But listen, can I tell you something? You're better because of it. When I realized the power of confession and accountability in my life, my walk with, with the Lord turned to 180. Because then well, I understand the power of, of believers in the church sharpening one another and becoming more like Jesus. It aided and sped up my sanctification because I became real with others. And this is what we see in the text. This is what we see in the text. So I want to leave you with this big question this morning. What hidden idols have captured your heart and perspective on life? And even a bigger question, have you surrendered to King Jesus? Because if you don't get that part, the idols will never be slaughtered. You have no power to slaughter them. You have no power and authority over them because you're still in your bondage of sin. Christ wants to set you free from these idols in your life. Because again, idols overpromise and underdeliver. They will never, ever give you the peace that only God can give you. They will never give you the joy and the hope and the love that God can give you. Will you stand? Many people here this morning want to pray with you, pray for you, want to encourage your heart. And I pray that if there's things that you just, maybe you just need to spend time with God today. You just need to confess whatever it is that God is working your heart. Would you do that? Would you allow God to, to pull those idols out and slaughter them? If there's someone here that wants to come and just have someone pray with them or pray for them, we want to do that as well.
Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word, God. And God, God, when you, when you allow me to teach and preach, God, I know you preached on my heart first, God. There's things that I've allowed. I'm, I'm a weak man. God, there's things that I know I constantly allow to creep back. God, I'm so sorry. God, would you give me the power to slaughter those idols in my life today? God, give me victory. Sanctify me more, Father. God, I want to be less like myself. I want to be more like Jesus. God, help us to have that, the cry of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen.